Hello, and welcome to 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. You can follow me at hkizvani on twitter.com. I mostly tweet about my journey into becoming a full-time house husband, but still someone who doesn't use the right kind of washing up liquid. Uh, and as always, I'm joined by... Um, I'm Phoebe. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PRHRoy. Um, I, I don't know why we're doing this new thing of saying what we mostly post about because oh, okay. I, I, like because like whenever you say it, I always get, like my mind goes blank and I always just say I mainly post about walruses and like rogue walruses that like escape yeah. and show up in different parts of the sea. Um, and I know that makes my account sound quite peculiar, but it's also true. So yeah, I mainly post about walruses. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like there's nothing wrong with consistency. I, I guess to me, it's just it's more like I have to explain sometimes why I why I say the things I say online. And mm. um, I'm trying to be more wholesome, like mm-hmm. more recently. Uh, so can I, can I suggest mo- walruses? Because they're very wholesome as creatures. Yes. Yeah. But right now I'm in my very much like discovering a new Hoover phase and like being very excited by that. Like a walrus, actually. Like I, I or no, no, I, 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 uh, I, I clap <laughs> like a seal when the Hoover does a good thing. Uh, okay. and, uh, anyway, we have a very, we have a, we have a kind of, I don't want to say serious guest because it's quite fun. <laughs> But we have a guest on and we're not going to like bring him into like our kind of minutia of our lives. Um, we are joined uh, by uh, the journalist and the author, Harry Kunzru. He's the author of The Impressionist, Transmission, a bunch of other books as well. Uh, but the re- novel we're going to talk about in uh, this episode is called Red Pill. Um, it came out in 2019, I think. I read it in 2020. It was very, very good. Um, and I definitely recommend we'll have all the links to purchasing that in the show notes. Uh, Harry, how is everything going? And welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. It was it was 2020, actually. So you read it. Oh, no. You read it right on the cusp of publication. Oh, nice. OK. Yeah. I mean, like that whole that whole period is like a blur to me. So like I feel like I read five books, but it felt like. So yours was one of them. Congratulations. I mean, it came came out in the middle of the pandemic. And I remember, I mean, basically sitting where I'm sitting now, my entire kind of publication experience was was this. Basically, Mm. I felt like the rest of the world had receded and it was just me and my little bubble. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I think like reading it, I definitely, you know, that vibe is very much present. Um, And uh, it's it's definitely an interesting, when I reread it, in preparation for this episode um and in the context of like the global vibe shift which is like either currently taking place or has already happened um the kind of notion of vibes is very present or like the kind of chilling vibes are very present in that novel and i thought it was like very uh very uh succinct um so yeah you maybe maybe red pill did predict the vibe shift uh maybe we can talk about that um but yeah go on sorry no, I was going to say, well, not rationally, did it? It did it with vibes. It kind of, I didn't understand <laughs> the vibe shift was flowing through me without me understanding. Yeah, I think that's that's the whole thing though about the vibe shift. You don't, you know, you you feel it. You don't like think it. Anyway, I'm not. I don't. Let's let's not let's not do a discourse on vibe shifting again. Because <laughs> um, I that was uh, like, that was like, a weird honestly, time. we do, like we don't need to. Like the vibe shift is all that. It's very rich people in their sixties paying thirty year olds to. Uh, try to perform a new kind of youth culture while the youth are doing whatever it is the youth do. Yes, that's um, spe- lit- that's literally all it is. That's the vibe shift. Yeah. That's speaking- the la- that's the last word on the vibe shift. Speaking of those sixty-year-olds, uh, just before we start the show, we also have a Patreon. Speaking speaking <laughs> of sixty-year-olds, 
<laughs> it was no, it was to do with like patrons and what patrons expect. It was supposed to be a joke. Okay, okay. Right, okay. Anyway, we have a Patreon. We have lots of good bonus content on there. So if you enjoy Pizza, this, I'm, ep- really, I'm really sorry. We'll we'll stay on script next time. Yeah, if if you enjoy this episode, or you you know in the future you will, uh, yeah, check out patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast. Lots of really good content on there. Five bucks a month, uh, and you get and there'll be some like more really good stuff coming. Um. Yeah, that was that was my joke that went very badly. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's, um, a, it's, 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 it's a good joke. I've got I've got more jokes about um about uh <laughs> about Peter T and uh yeah like I I I quite I kind of want to talk about the uh the uh, uh tradcath piece in the, in the New York Times, but I'm aware that we shouldn't derail things too much. No, let's not derail things too much. But let's derail things in a very specific way, which is uh about um so uh, Harry, every uh, time a guest comes on the show, we ask like you know is there something online that has broken your brain, or is there something that you find quite funny or interesting? You sent me a uh you sent me a classic of the genre, um a Twitter account of TikToks. Um, this is called Chaos TikToks. Uh, it's the first time I came across this account. Partly because like I'm not really on TikTok very much, but also um, I find a lot of the stuff. And there are lots of weird videos here, so I'm gonna like try describe one, which is like one of the lesser weird ones, but it has this kind of strange aesthetic, which um, I feel like we sort of need to unpack a little bit. So this is a like so the account Chaos TikToks it is ba- it curates like. It curates TikToks that are posted on Twitter. That's like a kind of genre in and of itself. This is a TikTok that is posted by a, a, um, a user called Shara Shane. Uh, it says, life is beautiful. And attached to it is a TikTok which says, I just got an email saying I have an ovarian cyst buying cucumbers and started crying. And then these guys just came up and said, want to see our snakes. And these are two guys who, uh, one of them is carrying a lettuce. They're just like in the supermarket with their tote bags. And they're both carrying snakes. And it's just very chill. Um, the woman who's filming it, like, is just kind of like a night, like, looks like a kind of like, you know, blonde yoga lady. I, I don't know how to describe it. It's a very, she look, you know, it, it's a very weird thing. I'm just, and I'm trying to figure out like what makes it so weird. So before I try to explain why I'm sort of unsettled by this, Harry, do you want to tell us like what has made this account generally just like very intriguing to you? I think because the person who curates it has uh, an eye for that unsettling quality there's often um i mean the weirdness of that is the is is the kind of collision between her terrible diagnosis and she was crying in the supermarket and then this mm. but it's presented as this sort of small moment of beauty that the guys with the snakes turn up and they hang out and it's great but she looks yeah. Firstly, I mean, she looks like she's sort of, yeah, this deeply suburban kind of Lululemon wearing uh, yoga person. But she also looks like somebody who is who's in a moment of of intensity. And uh, yeah, but yet it's being framed as this kind of I mean, it's more it's weird. It's more sort of Instagrammy feeling thing. It's got that kind Mm -hmm. of that lifestyle uplift. But actually, the, the edge of chaos in this one is is the presence of death i suppose but with a lot of these tiktoks that he's he's chosen there either there's either a very strange rhythm to them or something about the context makes them bizarre or i mean i just watched an i just watched a long one a few minutes ago just while i was waiting to come on where we seem to be in some what looks like a southern black neighborhood and there's a bunch of people hanging out with cars and stuff and somebody reverses out and, and somebody coming past hits them so there's a small you know car collision and the two guys get out and start having an argument about whose fault it was you know so far 
so mm. standard. And then somebody out of nowhere, possibly out of the trunk of one of the cars, comes a man in full football gear, kind of helmet and, and a uniform and pad, and starts doing this very elaborate kind of dance. And the and the whoever's taking the TikTok just loses interest in the fight about <laughs> who's who's crashed the car and just starts watching this yeah. character who seems to have stepped out of something completely different. And and it's a sort of you can't quite you can't quite pull that back into any any sort of understandable frame. It's just completely odd. There was another one where you you're seeing a sort of dirty f- piece of fencing, and a, and a pair of very highly sort of manicured red nails come round the fencing, uh, yeah, and uh, and a slightly sort of alarmingly made up femme looking person starts talking in bad French, saying "Atu un lighter." Are you a lighter? Do you have a lighter? Yeah. And that's all it is. And I, I have no notion why that happened, mm. why it was deemed worthy of being uploaded to a social media site, like what kind of tone they were going for. I, I love things that have this kind of indeterminate tone. Like, mm. I think that's yeah. what TikTok seems to capture. Because, I mean, we're very used to online video now. And there's a kind of um, a very sort of... Um, established instagram aesthetic where um mm. everything is very smooth everything is very perfection instagram is this this kind of aspirational sort of lifestyle thing and so a kind of a good instagram video will show you i don't know in my neck of the woods kind of book instagram will show you somebody flicking the pages of a book next to a nice matcha latte with a with yeah. a table decoration but this uh, but when you get the kind of slices of real life edited without any regard for 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 that kind of aspirational uh, feel, that becomes much more interesting, and that becomes a kind of I don't know. It seems to be. I mean, I'm sort of only beginning to formulate what I think about this, but it does seem to capture something about what it feels to like, like to be online now. Yeah, I mean, being online has always been about a lot of different things coming at you one after the other and often decontextualized and often clashing together in ways that make them both weird. But the the kind of, uh, I, I mean, often quite young people who are making these these videos have a, have a sort of uh, um, brains that are wired up for this in a way. There's no, there's no... Uh, I don't know what I'm saying here, but this it, it seems it seems to mm. capture something very particular about the 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 odd rhythm and the decontextualization of our experience of these little slices of other people's lives. Mm. What I think is what I think is interesting is something that I something that I've noticed taking place, uh, particularly on um, particularly on Instagram actually over the over the last little bit is um, there is this kind of there is this interest in a kind of pantomimed authenticity and naturalisticness like even with like even with like celebrities who you imagine will probably have pretty good phones like you can't imagine like a kardashian being like oh i'm i'm not like i'm not due for an upgrade yet you know i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to pay more than 30 quid a month for my phone like i'm not doing i'm not doing that shit um but you see them posting like deliberately out of focus pictures of themselves and of their friends and like maybe less like maybe less so like kind of like 
ultra like ultra rich like ultra influencers like the kardashians but like there's definitely a there's definitely a sort of alteration to uh to the kind of general aesthetic it's much less i like i know like on like on like book instagram it's different because that's still um books laid Curated. out beautifully next to a cup of tea and a very very perfectly polished foot that's like a, i've noticed a lot of like attempts to get the foot guys in to book instagram which is something which is maybe worth <laughs> maybe worth discussing that's a whole other story story. Yeah. there are so many feet on book instagram and it, it's it, they're tr- they're trying to they're trying to broaden that's them interesting off. i mean maybe I'm maybe there is some sort of venn diagram where the the foot lovers and the book lovers have some sort of mutual way of increasing each other's reach. Yeah, I think I think, I think that's I think that's true. I think it's just very. I mean, like feet guys, feet guys also pay money, right? I think that like known for it, aren't they? Yeah, and uh, so no, like no, not not anymore, not anymore. Like once upon a time, maybe like once upon a time, like all you needed to do was like have a have a blog, have a have a blog, and you and you got a book deal. But no, 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 no longer. There's foot, <laughs> there's market saturation on feet picks that no one no one's willing to pay for them anymore. Yeah, there's too many feet. Actually, I think genuinely that's true. We've had this conversation we have, before. We have had this conversation. Uh, yeah, before. there are, there are too many. Yeah, there's too many feet to online now. Back onto the feet discussion, but like, well, I'm, yeah, I'm interested like, in the thing that you said about about the authenticity, about mm. the about the kind of the the uh, the kind of faking the authenticity by being blurred or being mm. being in some way natural, um, and. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's what we're we're still all looking for, isn't it? Is a kind of hit of the real, a hit of mm. uh, of of something that feels like it goes a little bit deeper than uh, mm. than the kind of surface presentation. And so I suppose maybe that's that's what I'm finding in this uh, TikTok aggregator. Yeah, I no, I think I think there's de- like, there's definitely something in that because like because actually. Uh, what like what we're what we're talking about here is um is the is the in is the inherent unreality of a captured image. As soon as an image is captured and and as soon as anything is done with it, whether it be exhibited, just shared with people that you know, or whether you post it on a kind of more sort of public forum, it is it is by nature an artificial object. It is no longer it's no longer anything real. It is a representation and a simulacrum of something real. And I think that's like and that like I think is quite close to the disorienting feeling of consuming particularly lots of like quite odd tiktoks is that it like induces this kind of it induces this kind of deliberate hysteria where you know that not only is nothing you're looking at real it's all it's all image it's all reflections on it's all reflections on the wall it's 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 an object and not and not something which you mm. are kind of experiencing kind of firsthand, like just you just using your senses. Um, but also it, it's the knowledge that no matter how much time you spend on it, it is impossible to consume all the all the content. It is impossible for the whole of everything you see to be legible to you. Uh, there will always be memes that you won't understand. There will always be a, t- a TikTok, which is, which is, uh, which is just completely uh, sort of abstruse and completely just mysterious, just mysterious to you. And that's and like part of that is a kind of feeling of having sort of aged out of digital culture kind of full stop, but it's not, but it's not just that it's more this, this kind of feeling that I always get on looking at any kind of large posting, posting platform of, um, of, 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 
a sort of sense of kind of sensory overload of there being of there being something which my human brain is capable of coping with and there being this proliferation of images and information and meaning attached to images and meaning attached to meaning attached to images and I will never be able to consume or understand it all and so it kind of creates this like the disconnect in your own in your own yeah. brain and between what you're consuming and what you're and what you're experiencing and it's that's why it's quite nice that there are tiktok aggregator accounts because otherwise you could just be searching for legibility and searching for meaning basically forever i mean i think it, it yes absolutely it's overwhelming isn't it and it's it's kind of we're not we're not designed to cope with 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 that much material but there's there's something sublime about it as well i mean there's something mm. you know the excess of of information the kind of presence of the whole world at any point just kind of mm. waiting for you is is sort of teetering on that brink between being being kind of awesome and scary or being kind of exhilarating and and terrifying you know we're uh, you know i mean there are all these kind of 20th century figures for the same thing like you think of all the kind of kafka and bureaucracy and i mean my go-to for it is always the end of that first indiana jones movie where they found the they found the ark of the covenant and it's the most valuable and amazing thing in the world and it gets boxed up and wheeled into a big warehouse full of other identical crates and you realize mm. that there's this kind of almost infinite amount of material and somewhere mm hidden in this warehouse of infant material is the you know the answer to life the universe and everything and instead of that what we have is this kind of it's not like a 20th century like warehouse filing system it's something this kind of tsunami of information that will always kind of exceed our ability to process it mm. Mm. also that goes through the same <clears throat> like so one when I was thinking about like the aggregators, number one, I was thinking like it's it, the aggregators are nice in the sense that like they're 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 ways in which um, elder millennials who have like aged out of like digital culture can sort of feel like they're participating in it. And it's also like another great reminder of like oh, uh, TikTok is a weird site, and here's like a taste of that weirdness. Um, and it you know is fun and it's exhilarating, but you also kind of like it's also that reminder at least for me that like this is not a place for you. <laughs> um, and but it's also really interesting because I was thinking about this in terms of cycles and how in on every kind of posting platform, there's always sort of been, especially kind of like at the point when it sort of becomes uh, is starting to kind of become very popular and every, you know, you, and you have like lots of, you know, the corporations and you have lots of like uh, media people being like, oh, everyone has to be on here and everyone has to be producing stuff and everything. There's kind of that weird, there's kind of like the, the kind of weird creators who um, sort of know what's about to happen, but they're still kind of like creating kind of weird and subversive uh, or like kind of incomprehensible um, forms of, you know, art to uh, interact with that. And I think you saw that in part with like weird Twitter, you had like the contingent of like weird YouTube during that time. Um, I'm sure like weird Facebook must have been a thing at some point. Um, and I wonder whether this is just another example of like, as TikTok becomes more popular, and as like you have the kind of creator economy and the influencer economy all sort of being um, Ankylo also being concentrated in that space. What you see here is not necessarily like a depiction of like what TikTok is like or like what the experience of TikTok is, but rather like almost this acknowledgement among users who will never sort of enter that influencer, monetizable influencer space of like, 
yeah, just kind of creating weird content because they sort of know what's about to happen, right? But eventually they're going to sort of be either sort of um, submerged by the algorithm or that the platform is sort of going to become untenable to use for them. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, how how far can we even ever say like the experience of using TikTok or the experience of using Twitter? Like my mm, Twitter yeah. is not your Twitter. You, you know, I mean, I I think that's that sort of siloing thing is 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 also fascinating. In that, I mean, I have yeah. a very, I mean, I see I see, I see my tw- I've been on Twitter since two thousand and eight, so that's like kind of that's that's over a well over a decade of of gardening my feed so that it does what yeah. I want it to, and that means that huge swathes of that Twitter experience is not is not mine because I don't want to know about it. I mean, it's yeah. uh, uh, I don't know whether I'm going with that, but but yeah, how can no, we I, talk you- about the universal experience of any of these things beyond the very nuts and bolts kind of? technical yeah. constraints of what you can post yeah i mean, and I guess I mean we're yeah, talking on, about sorry. i mean we're talking about how to describe experience full stop which is basically something which anyone who is involved in any kind of creative activity is trying to do they're trying to mm. capture and describe experience there's no particular reason why the experience of using tiktok should be any any more or less difficult to describe than the experience of the experience of anything like human like human experience and being able to encapsulate it is yeah. basic is is just a, it's just a very very difficult difficult thing to do. I actually have a, I actually have a question. And I'm sorry for interrupting you. Saying it's just I was just thinking about no, go um, thinking thinking about experience thinking about experience and the image and trying desperately not to bring up Walter Benjamin because I know like I'm on a ban at the moment and I'm not supposed to be talking about him but like <laughs> um, I would quite like to so just put a pin in that and just assume that I have said something about Walter Benjamin because that's what I want to do um it's just this is actually a really just like basic like idiots question about that specific TikTok with the woman in the supermarket seeing the guy with the snakes what kind of doctor sends serious diagnostic information over email is this something is this like something that happens now yeah i mean that's that's a quite interesting door i mean i i would imagine that would happen face to face wouldn't it isn't that a kind of ethical imperative mm, still not necessarily not no well, this is the thing because she doesn't say cancer. She says ovar- she says an ovarian cyst, and I've had an ovarian cyst, and it was extremely unpleasant and extremely painful. And then I had to get it removed on a semi-urgent basis because it was too large and it was going to rupture, um, mm. which was very un- it was very unpleasant. But like, unless it had ruptured, it it, it definitely wasn't going to kill me. But I have no experience of like diagnostics being done over like over email or over text. The only thing that I've ever seen is like is getting like kind of the all clear over over text which i know some doctors do like maybe it's different maybe it's different in the states but it just it just feels like because of like de- like even just like kind of basic kind of data protection that they just would not be emailing you serious results like that they do send you test results and and so i mean usually not via email but via you can go and get them on a on a, a doctor's website or something mm. like that. So I feel like my my experience of healthcare here versus the UK is that there's a there's a lot more kind of uh, you know 
I don't know, you're given access to these uh, results and so on as documents in a way that rather oh. than you know, a conversation with your GP, which would have been okay. how you know I, I might have done it. But I, I suspect that she must have had a phone call or some other kind of conversation yeah. with her doctor before a test result was made available hmm. saying, yeah, we're confirming that what we thought is happening is happening. I, I mean, yeah. I can't believe that it was as, it was as, because uh, the, I mean, the ethics of it are the same and the kind of care that you have to give to someone is the same, no matter, no matter where you are. I mean, but she'd have questions. She'd have, she'd be scared, you know, if it was just this yeah. uh, uh, bald fact, you know, via text. <laughs> mm. and, yeah. And I just, cause I, cause I was just, I was just thinking if it's not, strictly literally true like what that adds to your conceptual conceptualization of like what like what, what is she doing yeah i mean if she's if she's like, a yeah. sort of you know she reads as this kind of wellness yoga lady and mm. you know who might be interested in the small moment of transcendence that shows that her life has meaning and and specialness and that she's in you know in touch with the beauty of it all and possibly she's into positive thinking as well which will be our whole other deal in terms of health diagnoses and so on. Mm. I mean, the, the culture of uh, think your way towards health here in the US is is remarkably ingrained as a kind of mm. quasi-religious thing. So, I mean, you could imagine that she decided to present this chance encounter almost as a way of, of showing that she has the right attitude to get herself healthy again. I mean, it could yeah. be she's like, it's a kind of wellness move to say, I'm alive to to the you know small moments of beauty in my life therefore the energy will flow in the right direction yeah the, uni the universe has sent me these men yes. with the snakes yes the men the happy yeah. men with the snakes they do seem very happy I they can't, seem, I can't... Yeah, they, i'd like to I, meet them they seem nice maybe i told you this before we recorded but there was a time like a couple of years ago when i did see a man walking a snake um yeah the snake the snake was on a leash and he did look pretty happy about it so where, where was there, this? Is this in in a British city somewhere? Yeah, but no, this was in London. This was in London. It was like in my weird area of South London where I live, where like well, um, south of the river, mate. Of course, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. There's something with the water here. But you've got like you know, you've got like the horses. You know, yeah, but, but there's a lot of like kind of uh, horses that just sort of like hang around around these areas. Uh -huh. So, um, but yeah, like there was a you know, I was going on one of my like pandemic walks as you do. And on the other side of the road was a guy just walking his snake. And I had to do a double take. I was like, yeah, he, he's, he's walking a snake. Um, and he looks just pretty happy and chill about it. Did it have a collar? Yeah, well, the leash had a collar, right? But I was just like, how does that, how does that like work? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you walk a snake? You'd have yeah, to get but, that specially made, surely. Yes, yes. And I think that he may have made it himself. Okay. Um, well, he, he did once briefly yeah. date somebody who had a snake and she would allow it like loose in the bed <laughs> sometimes and uh, like so there would be this sort of squeeze around your arm or around your leg yeah. and you'd realize that it was a sort of non-human presence yeah, yeah I have you, I have yeah. a very strict no tank pets rule <laughs> like, good I, rule that's like a nice bright line that's that's good just, to know it just if you have to keep it in a tank, it shouldn't be in your house. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you take it out for walks. Anyway, I feel like Was I feel it, like no, um, I have, I have more questions about the guy walking the snake. I'm so sorry. I'm so okay, sorry. One, about more, this, one, more, one, more, one question. more question about the guy with the snake. Okay. Okay. Was the snake kind of swishing along in a kind of S shape like snakes do? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, so when people were walking forward towards him and they were like, this man is not walking a dog, he's walking a snake. Mm. They And they saw the snake sort of slivering around the road. Why wouldn't um, you they, just carry your snake? Um, if you had I to take it out for a walk. Like snakes don't need exercise, do they? Um, I don't think they do. But I... <sighs> Again, it was definitely one of those questions where it was just like I would have had to cross. I would have I would have had to cross a, like a dual car, like not a dual carriageway, but one of those sort of like two way roads to ask this question. And maybe I should have, but I was there, just like, yeah, I had there pandemic. Was a girl, brain. There was a girl at my school who had one of those very small snakes that looked like a worm. You know, those little those little black yes, worms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she once came into school wearing it around her wrist like a bracelet, and okay. because she was uh, because she wore those like black rubber like goth bracelets all the way up her arm yeah um so no one spotted it until someone was sitting next to her in class glances over notices that one of her bracelets is moving yeah. freaks out there's oh, like there's no. obviously, obviously there is cha- obviously there is chaos and the next day we had to have a special assembly where our head teacher said i can't believe <laughs> i can't believe i'm having to say this but you can't bring snakes into school <laughs> Um, so you just, you can't, you can't do that. I wonder what she's doing now. I hope it's something yeah. cool. Yeah. I hope she's all right. I hope she's yeah, I like hope she's all right. her snake and just being happy about it. Um, yeah. So that was, that was, uh, that was chaos TikToks. And that was also, <laughs> um, a long snake, chat about talking corner. like walk, walking, walking your snake. Um, yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk about like, let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about red pill and let's talk about also. Um, so when I, so when I was like thinking about doing this episode, initially it was going to be just about the book, but while I was doing some research, I came like, Harry, I came across an essay that you wrote, I think just before the book actually came out or around about the same time, which was about um, 4chan and your history on 4chan. And I thought it was like an in- really interesting essay because a lot of the stuff I'd read and still continue to read about 4chan in like mainstream media and stuff tend to kind of like conceive of it as being and has and having always been this sort of like, um, you know, just kind of like, Stormfront on steroids, like, or Stormfront on kind of like meme steroids or whatever you want to call it. Like they kind of assume that this is a site that was like built for hate and like that's what it's done and there's no kind of like, you know, history or like genealogy behind it. The thing about what your essay was interesting, what it was about was um, not that it didn't, not that it kind of like denied this or so, you know, but it kind of looked at the history of 4chan as it sort of developed into what it's become in terms of like being a political vehicle, but also it tells a very interesting story about the internet. And um, I think something that is touched on in Red Pill a lot, which is when the protagonist of Red, like, or when when the main character of like of the novel kind of struggles to sort of say like decipher what is in the real world and what isn't. And whether that distinction really matters is kind of something that we can discuss. But I wondered just as a starting point, uh, could you talk to us about like the, like that essay and also just your history on 4chan and how it informed like writing this novel? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I got online, I mean, I'm older than you guys and I got online um, in I think I had my first email in like 1992. So recently I realized I've been, I know I came to be an adult before the internet, um, but then I became extremely online quite quickly in the kind of just, just at the point where there were very few websites even. And certainly, um, you know, there was a kind of established mailing list culture or a, or a <clears throat> kind of chat forum culture. So all the kind of, the types of people and the types of content that were around were were there, but they weren't kind of enabled in the same way. And I, but and I, 
have always been quite interested in in the way that the internet gives you access to kind of quite extreme subcultures and extreme points of view and I've, I've made it my business to go and dig around in in those places and sometime in the early aughts I mean I, I want to say I haven't got the essay in front of me but I want to say about 2005 or something a friend of mine who's a, a leftist organizer in San Francisco said I've just found this this situation is going on there are these uh um it's in a it's in a he was he was a, a game developer and was very interested in in sort of graphical virtual worlds and there was a, a there was a place called habo hotel that was a yeah. that was a sort of virtual environment that was marketed at, at teens and some people had turned up in in this uh space made these very offensive kind of uh um uh black avatars and stood around in a swastika shape uh and prevented other people kind of from exiting a particular space and then you know and then every time they were up they were told to move they responded with the same kind of uh highly racist phrase and my my friend was like this is this is fascist organizing this is this is you know something we should really worry about and i was like it just seems like it's trolling is kind yeah. of you know how seriously should i really take it and mm. i dug around and i found that they were they'd all come from 4chan it was a raid from 4chan and that was my first experience of 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 b the 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 kind of anything yeah. goes board on on 4chan and then i found and then later on there was poll as well which became quite significant as a sort of incubator for the sort of more mystical end or the more sort of meme lord end of the of the kind of trump thing but so i so i kind of dug around in it and was quite it was pretty appalling a lot of the content on there is is really horrible um but there was a kind of also i could see the point i could see why it was sort of hilarious to be so appalling and there was a kind of arms race of horribleness that people were getting into that there was mm. a and that there was a creativity too i mean and so much of the kind of internet culture that that is is has been sort of normified in subsequent years did start off there i mean we all uh you know everybody knows about pepe the frog and the various uses of that but things like wojaks and 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 a lot of the kind of basic uh, use of even the kind of way of using memes as a as a sort of reply or as a kind of beat in a conversation or as a kind of uh, or a sort of you know or, or kind of ringing the changes on memes as a way of kind of moving conversations forward that came out of that image board culture and so over mm-hmm. the years I kind of I spent bits of time in it and then forgot about it for a while and then came back and forward and there was a period of time where I wasn't really looking at what was going on over there and then they all sort of popped up again and suddenly there were very serious far-right uh organizing going on there and there was a kind of politically meaningful push uh to support um the Donald Trump uh, presidential campaign. And so, I mean, it was amazing to me. It was kind of really disorientating that the kind of teenage edge lords that had been around were now all grown up, and that a subset of them had been uh, properly exposed to some sort of more meaningful and coherent far right ideology, rather than just sort of saying shit in order to in order to kind of you know annoy the the pearl clutching liberal person in your life you know mm. they had become an actual ideology and 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 and, the, and that seemed to blindside people people who hadn't been you know wasting so much time on the internet were incredibly disorientated by the fact that suddenly into mainstream political discourse was this whole culture 
that had had been brewing for years and and years on online and 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 there was a lot of as you say kind of quite ill-informed sort of stuff about you know the imagining that had kind of turned up fully formed rather than it being a kind of response to a sort of I don't know. I always think of it as a, as a lot of it as a response to a real kind of complacency that has been thoroughly sort of disabused in the in the last few years. I think there was a mm. point in the in the sort of late nineties, early aughts, where it was possible to be uh, a, a kind of elite liberal person and imagine that the world was sort of trundling inexorably onwards towards a kind of. Uh, uh, I don't know, a, a sort of nice secular liberal utopia where race would have no meaning and, and everybody yeah. would kind of get on with, you know, consuming Apple products. And then so much <laughs> more, uh, there was so much outside that that was just sort of suppressed because it kind of didn't kind of fit the narrative. And they didn't, people didn't understand that they, they still needed to make active cases for things like anti-racism and, um, and that that there was this notion brewing that certain kinds of un, un, uh, uh, certain kinds of information that didn't fit were being actively suppressed. That there was a sort of room for conspiracy theories to arise, and that there was a kind of room for for narratives of uh, that you could be the edgy outsider and the kind of cool kid who was in the know if you you know worked out that the Jews were behind the lot or whatever other kind of conspiracy theory was being peddled. So there was a kind of failure to address this and a failure to kind of understand where younger people were getting information and how discourse was actually happening. And then I think that, you know, was that sort of blew up in, in the faces of certainly of the democratic party in, in 2016. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Quite spectacularly. Is, do you think, because I've, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've been trying to kind of think what is different, um, what, what was different substantially between, um, between something like Chan culture and the extremely unpleasant and like relatively routine jokes that I used to make as a teenager like I was like I was a I was a repulsive individual as a teenager like (laughs) uh like I am extremely happy that there is no such thing as in in any kind of appreciable way as online when I was a teenager because I would have been cancelled so many times like it's like I I would sort of have gone sort of ascended into that kind of uncancellable sphere because it just been like she's so awful there's actually nothing we can say um and it never would have it never would have occurred to me to for i mean for a number of fairly obvious reasons it would never have occurred to me to have um sought out far right spaces and i probably wouldn't have been deemed to be a particularly good target for for far right um for far right indoctrination <laughs> again for like a number of although like i i i've told the story I don't know. Um, there's some fascinations I, around <laughs> i mean that's true that's true like they did like, like i'm not saying it not saying it doesn't exist i could have like i could have gone big i could have gone big with the hindu var i could have done i could have mm-hmm. done um but uh decided not to uh as a the bjp <laughs> it cell mr <laughs> mr <laughs> a recruit exactly it'd be a, B, a B, bjp uh influencer that would have been an interesting interesting like uh, different career path interesting route to have gone down um but yeah like um my I, I assume he was joking, but like my dad has this whole bit about how how I should get a job writing for Breitbart because I would have been, I would be so like 
I would be like <laughs> such a kind of amazing like get for them that they would just like pay me whatever I asked. And I was like, yeah, but are you serious? And he's like, well, the media is dying. And I was like, all right, okay, you know, right, you're not yeah. not enough, enough bits out of you. Um, but what I think, what I think was the kind of like the, 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 the difference was that it didn't, it didn't occur to me at the time that it would have ha- that there were any capacities for um, a shift in thought or for that matter, any kind of real world consequences and i didn't it didn't occur to me to like seek out seek out community whether whether that be digital or in real life that would similarly enjoy the same kinds of jokes that i enjoyed that wasn't something that that wasn't something that that wasn't something that occurred to me so i wonder if part of it is the is the absolutely like torn down and destroyed uh barriers to entry uh, and how few step, how few steps you need to take to be confronted with some, with some highly unpleasant and I think highly dangerous material. Absolutely, I mean, I mean, just think about how you know pre-internet how hard it was to see porn. I mean, you know, you had to get, you had to go into a shop and some somehow kind of you know purchase a, a magazine, whereas you know clearly now it's everywhere, and that goes for absolutely everything. I mean the you know, if if I want to if I want to find the most you know Nazi Satanist material, I, that's you know seconds away from my from my desktop. So I think the barrier to entry thing is real, but but also I think in terms of the culture, I think a really important thing is this weird space between joking and not joking. I think your dad hmm. seems to have quite a kind of handle on that in a in a funny way that in yeah. that there is this whole you know the, the you know I'm just shit posting. But I might be a bit serious, and it's indeterminate, indeterminable how how serious I am. And then, um, you know, like the I mean the the the, the Christchurch mass murderer saying at time no more shit posting, time for a real life effort post. And and the idea that the the action in the real world is a sort of extension of this sort of shit posting culture, and it's always plausibly deniable. Like, I mean, the kind of thing with the OK sign is a kind of perfect example of that. Like, there was a, you know, for every everybody jumping up and down on their social media account saying, "Look, this visible uh, right wing influencer made this sign. This shows definitively that they are a fascist, and they can kind of come back and say, I'm doing the OK sign.' You you know hysterical idiot but you know this uh, the barrier to entry thing and the kind of distance between shit posting and kind of and the real world i think is nowhere better exemplified than the career of stephen miller the the trump mm. uh, advisor who ended up in charge of u.s immigration policy like in his first official photo he's there fiddling with his um the, the button on his jacket and to me it's very clearly that he, clear that he's doing He's doing his okay symbol as a kind of disguised as this uh, this kind of uh, gesture with his button, and he's a creature of the chance. He's known, you know, he's he's absolutely in every fiber of his being clearly been marinating in this mm. uh chan culture content since he was a teen, and his whole kind of trollish persona is that. But he's you know he's a, a serious ideologue as well, and a very uh, ruthless and committed person who managed to put into practice 
family separation. He was mm. the person who who traumatized many, many thousands of migrant children and their parents by ripping them apart in uh, uh, when they were arrested at the border, mm. and and he did it for the lulls. He yeah. did it, you know. Yeah. He did it, you know, out of out of a, a wish to be kind of. And you know, as far as I can see, he's like he's like the the king of all those guys, the guys who kind of wanted to post gas oven memes and helicopter memes and all and all the rest of it. And he ended up he ended up with a very serious governmental position. So I think we we have to finally lay to rest the idea that there is the internet and then there is the real because the yeah. internet and the real are now absolutely coterminous and uh, that we live inside this indeterminate space of shit posting and effort yeah. posting and 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 in an odd way as kind of media analysts or whatever it is that we're doing here by talking about internet culture, we are, I mean, it was very important to understand the, the ways in which these, these, the belonging around these ideas, they, they give community, they give a sense of purpose. They give a kind of sort of support to, to people as they, as they kind of go forth in their lives and, and, and make, I don't know consequential political decisions, but mm. the you know the the mask is now firmly on our face. You know we're all we're all on the internet all the time, even when we're not. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I just is, yeah. yeah on, I just I don't know. Sorry, it's just it's just like it. I yeah. I I can I completely agree with you about the coterminosity of online of online and the real world. It's it's just it should be treated as just another environment. It just so happens that it's an environment which takes place which which takes place digitally um, and induces and inculcates its own its own norms and its own language and its way and its own way of operating. It's just like it's just like another country. I mean, that's sort of a decent enough way of looking at it. Um, I think it's I think like a lot of it is. And I, I completely agree with what you're saying about like this kind of space between serious and joking. And it's very been it's very much been deliberately set up so that anyone who objects to it can be painted as just having no sense of humor or not getting it or um or wanting to like uh police expressions of like young people just being obnoxious and then how, and then but then again how do you how do you tell the difference between a young person who is just being obnoxious in the way mm. that a young person is and like kind of you know finding finding their kind of finding their like finding their edges i mean we talk about edge lords but like the point is the point is of like of any kind of like dark humor space is to be exploring like the contours of like what you find personally expect like acceptable what you're willing to live with in the world what you're willing to tolerate from other people um I mean, it's, it's it's one of the kind of greatest tricks the right has pulled in recent years is to simultaneously manage to pre, pre, present sort of leftists and liberals as being these censorious nannies who are trying mm. to stop everybody having a, a a good time, and simultaneously put into into place some of the most kind of extreme forms of censorship. I mean, like you know, mm. now where I'm in the the US, every day I'm hearing about new book bans in different libraries in some mm. local community. I think in Virginia maybe just closed down its local library system because the librarians objected to banning certain LGBTQ books. 
and and so they're they're managing to do they're they're playing they're playing or have over the last few years played a very good game of simultaneously presenting mm-hmm. themselves as the swashbuckling lovers of freedom and absolutely clamping down on kinds of expression that they don't like yeah and yeah. like me and like mean and like meanwhile their opponents are like like kind of almost sort of kind of groveling around saying like it's not that we're not fun like honestly oh, we can there's, be there's fun nothing we can be more fun lame than an elite doing. liberal trying to pretend that they're cool yeah like like 100 mm. like 100 but also like i just i just i don't know like but like i think the, i think what i'm sort of trying to kind of get sort of get my head around a little bit is how something which like which starts out as basically a very very low stakes activity like it's partly characterized by how easy it is to do and how quickly that can develop into a very high stakes activity and what what really is expected to be done about it because i think that i think any kind of expansion of uh of something like prevent into turning this into a, a sort of a matter for law enforcement is like is is just very obviously disastrous. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, again, having I've been in the states for fifteen years, and so I'm very kind of used to the American norms around the First Amendment, and it's quite weird to to see certain British prosecutions happening for for speech that would be absolutely protected under the First Amendment here. Mm. I mean, you know, people. I seem to remember somebody got a prison time for burning a poppy on facebook live or something like that and and that kind of that kind of thing you know clearly shows that as soon as you have a set of uh speech norms that are enforceable by the by the state and the cops in some way there's it's open to huge huge abuse mm. so i mean you know and then the usual answer is well this kind of you know, unfettered freedom of expression let's go um so and you know, clearly there are also issues around hate speech and there are issues around, I don't know, people always use the sort of boring fire in a crowded theatre example, but there are situations where uh, it seems reasonable to put limits on freedom of expression and it's a question of of how how those limits are uh, enforced. I mean, in in most cases, in almost all cases, it, you know, I I I think social norms rather than uh, rather than law is mm. the is the correct way to go forward. I mean, years ago, I remember being with Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight, and there was a drama around Big Brother because uh, there was a I don't know if you ever saw that show, but there was a there was a, a a woman called Jade Goody and Jade Goody's yeah. mum had been on at the same time as it can't was it Ash Warrior Rye? It was it was a big actress, big Bollywood actress. Oh, it, it was, was um, Shil Pachetti. Shil Pachetti. That's right. And and she says, I don't know. She says, I can't even remember what she said, but she said something racist to to Shil Pachetti. And uh, I was there with uh, another guest who was asking for Jade Goody's mum to be prosecuted for for this. And 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 it, you could see that there was this sort of in 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 you know there was a slippery slope between. Uh, that call and and a kind of um, a kind of involvement of the state in people's speech that would have been impossible. Mm. And I, you know, and I tried to make the case that 
the correct way of dealing with that would be for people to show their disgust with that kind of speech in public forums like Newsnight. So in fact, what we were yeah. doing by discussing it on Newsnight was the response. That's that's what we needed to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, we've still, you know, we're still in that sort of that same conversation. It'll never, ever go away. I mean, one of the interesting sort of things that rises up again and again with it is the irony versus sincerity thing. And I think the yes, whole yeah. kind of, uh, you know, we're in a, we're in a cultural moment where we're back on our irony bullshit and, uh, and everybody's, you know, everybody's desperately scared of being thought to be cringe and being thought to be sincere, but there's a, uh, you know, the sincerity backlash will come. Um, but there is, you know, there's a, there's a, the, the pitfall of irony is the inability to, to actually make any kind of case without, uh, without it kind of collapsing into its opposite, without being mm-hmm. able to be able to stand up for anything. If you're endlessly ironic, you end up as a as a as a as a downtown Chad Catholic, you know, yeah. outside <laughs> a, a bar vaping, you know, desperately hoping that you know that will bring some meaning to your life. So, I mean, I'm you know, I I I think there's a there's always a place for for a very unvarnished. Yeah, sincere speech that things that you're prepared to defend and not ironize you know mm. obviously yeah. uh there are limits to that as well and these are kind of a sort of cultural polarities that sort of shift around and shift mm. around you know i mean i don't know uh, 15 years ago it was are you in the book world it was are you a foster wallace person a, a, a partisan of of sincerity or are you a brett ellis person a, 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 <laughs> a kind of a partisan of of irony and uh, now we're doing the same thing with kind of memes yeah i want to think i think it's very cowardly the endless ironizing yeah absolutely um, I, I, particularly, I want, particularly yeah. in the particularly in the kind of global climate that we live in now yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's nonsense and it is i mean to me it is it is objectively uh colluding with yeah fascism yeah. to be quite honest i mean let's not but let's not put too fine a point on it i mean that kind of that sort of our endlessly edgy transgressive thing it just serves to to reinforce the most kind of regressive mm-hmm. parts of the status quo and i think if you're pretending mm-hmm. that you're you're rebellious and that you're in doing anything that's uh uh an anti-establishment with that you are lying to yourself yeah like it's very it's very funny for the like for the the sort of king, king rebels of 4chan to get like so committed to electoral politics that like that to me is a very funny thing for self-described rebels and counter like kind of counterculture figures yeah. to do like oh yeah we're really really it, like we're really into like elections now we want to talk about the iowa caucus like come on yeah, but that's, I, guess I, mean, it, yeah. A, I mean, in a way, that's that's also that there's you know there's a reveal, and that they turn out just to want daddy's approval all the yeah. all the time. I mean, you know, do you know what I mean? You're not you're not trying to kind of you know poo your pants in public that much, unless like you know, deep down you're really kind of you'd like to you'd like daddy to tell you that you're funny and good. Yeah, <laughs> I want I want to like bring it back to red pill um, for us because like irony and. Like, I think when it comes to the um, central character uh, and the sort of paranoia that you kind of feel, I don't know, parent, like there, there is this kind when I was talking about like the kind of vibe that you sort of get reading it. Um, I don't know whether I said that on mic or off, but there is this kind of like on, there's this feeling of like the main character feeling very unsettled and like increasingly paranoid, partly because 
um, in the first kind of section of a novel, he's in this like very strange part of uh, Germany in this like writer's residence that is almost feels like a kind of like he's working in a management like consultancy uh, in this very strange part of Germany that is very in this building that is like over surveilled. Um, and then like as he kind of uh, spends more and more time watching. Uh, a show called Blue Lies, like a police, uh, is it like a police show? He becomes like increasingly paranoid as he becomes, as he sort of sees these kind of symbols and sees like, I guess, for lack of a better term, like hidden knowledge that purports to. Uh, I think the the underlying kind of idea is that he notices some aspects of that show which hint towards like fascist motifs that are neither confirmed or denied by the creator, but that sort of like. This, that's sort of where his mind is at. I guess I, I've I've butchered that explanation because I think it's a really great novel, but it's like really hard to describe. So I guess um, I wanted to ask for people who haven't who are who aren't familiar with this novel, maybe like would you be able to kind of give a quick synopsis of what it is? But I guess um, when it comes to like the paranoia and uh, the paranoia that I think emerges out of a kind of like someone who is submerged into. Um, ironic, like irony posting. Uh, could mm. you sort of like develop on li- uh, a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an attempt. It's a it's a it was my way of sort of screaming onto the page about how how things were feeling to me around sort of 2014, 15, 16, 17 as 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 I as I saw this kind of ironized Chen culture kind of bleed its way into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I saw how absolutely flat footed most of the the kind of responses from people with real power were, they just didn't understand it. So I, I sort of staged a situation where there's a, there's a character who's a sort of rather grumpy middle-aged writer who in some ways is a bit like me, but is also much more kind of wedded to uh, a, a kind of rather what I call a kind of complacent vision of, of yeah. liberal norms, who mm. goes on this writer's residency in in Berlin, and is put increasingly on edge by the people that he's with, by this sort of unpleasant situation of having to work in a communal space and feeling he's being watched. He doesn't complete his book, which is a rather pretentious thing about um, the lyric poetry and the self. He can't kind of actually work on that. Um, cause he's sort of suspecting that there's no there, there he's asking himself, well, what am I, what is, what are the constituent parts of myself? And he's, as you say, he, he wastes all his time binge watching this very violent American police show called blue lives, which, uh, includes these very graphic scenes of violence but also these strange moments where, where the characters seem to be kind of promoting a sort of nihilistic philosophy that, mm. uh, you know, uh, resistance to power is useless life is just this sort of dog eat dog thing and uh and he begins to suspect that there's actually a kind of agenda behind this and he falls into a sort of paranoid situation so the latter part yeah. of the novel is is he has a he has effectively has a breakdown but he can he thinks that he's in a sort of almost like a cosmic battle with the creator of this show for like mm. when whose yeah. truth is going to prevail and and it's not that there is no truth to it. I mean, clearly the the creator the creator mm. is involved in in far right networks. But at the same time, it's I wanted to 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 write about this experience of existing in this liminal, serious, not serious, yeah. real internet kind of space where everything is plausibly deniable, everything is ironic. Uh, taking anything seriously is the most you know ridiculous move that you can make and how mm. that actually does lead us to to slide towards a kind of uh, 
the kind of very worrying political place that we are we are now where we are you know the the idea of jettisoning democratic norms is definitely on the table for a lot of people Mm. um and so it's a book and it's it's you know it's a book about uh i mean the title is red pill obviously the 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 matrix via years of internet usage makes people familiar with this idea of taking the red pill as seeing the real in some way as somehow seeing the world as it is rather than Mm. the world that they want you to see or the world, some sort of screen reality. But Mm. you know, the, the, the irony of that title in that used for this guy is that his red pilling isn't a sort of like, Oh yeah. Like this is the correct worldview, this far right worldview. It's much more a kind of, it's a kind of complete collapse of, yeah. of his understanding of what norms are, of what's possible and how yeah, you know, is yeah. that. And I had that vertiginous feeling, certainly, I mean, I still have it now to some extent, but I'm not sure mm. how far <clears throat> things will go. You can never kind of quite judge to bring it back to Walter Benjamin, uh, <laughs> whether it's 1933 and you really ought to be packing your book collection and getting the hell out or, or whether you can afford to, to stay around uh, a little longer. And you kind of never know how, whether you're being excessive and hysterical in your fears mm. about, you know, in my case, my fears about the end of uh, the end of democracy and the coming of a kind of Christian nationalism uh or whether whether that's a completely reasonable uh point of view and that people ought to be taking it more seriously so you're stuck in this kind of paralyzing um indecision where Mm. you know if you wait to act until you have decided definitively what you think is real then it's too late so we're in this kind of situation where we have to act in this sort of with this provisional information and surrounded by things that seem to be uncertain and changing and yeah. maybe fake, you know, this kind of post-truth world, which is it's a, it's a bit of a slippery phase phrase post-truth, but mm-hmm. there's something that it does capture about the kind of inability to, to use, you know, that mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a sort of foundation for whatever you're going to decide to do in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Something I found really interesting reading the novel, particularly in his, uh, both in his attempts to do his own academic work, but also when he starts watching the TV show, is like how much of it is about his search for legibility and his search for a kind of, um, like a kind of inter- like a kind of interactive and collaborative way of thinking and working which he th- sort of thinks very briefly that he's found when he when he meets when he meets the creator so there so there is this kind of opportunity for almost this kind of co-forum um co-forum thinking <clears throat> with this with this guy who's made the who's made this made this stuff but but he's but he's actually he's sh- but he's shut out of any capacity for interactivity and any capacity for for intertext so he just has to so he has to rely on the kind of on his own interior uh decay and like that that felt to me like a motif that kind of comes up sort of throughout the novel so that so with the set so with the section um with uh monica who was used as an asset by the stasi but was the the, 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 the fake the fake asset and how uh and how she and how she describes the feeling of finding out that she has been um 
that she has been sacrificed in order to protect the real asset all along. And that alters her perceptions of like what her life has been. And the narrator is sort of involved in a kind of similar, similar search for some kind of some kind of unvarnished external truth, which he can like, which he can apply to the to the culture that he's consuming, or his own work, or even how he feels about his feels about his wife and daughter. He's sort of ser- he's searching for some something some kind of concrete legibility, which he can which he can apply, and without any ironization or any uh multiple lens or any kind of or any kind of interpret or sort of glass of interpretation he just has to he has to find something which he can which he can which he can cling on to um it's, i mean it's a story about the limitations of that as a way of proceeding really like the you know, more mm. he's in his own head the further away he gets from other people i mean what he wants mm. is to get back to his wife and daughter to be fully present to be yeah the loving partner, the loving father, that he increasingly just can't be because he's sort of uh, so involved in this highly in- interiorized uh, sort of search for for truth. And I mean, and that's, I mean, I wanted to write also about the limitations of that because I mean, what he doesn't do mm. is seek real community. He certainly doesn't make, he doesn't no. kind of make the, what I would say would be the political move, which would be to say, I, I, I see these people who who want everything I don't want. I should find, mm. I should organize. I should find, yeah. I should find like-minded people, and I should externalize my troubles and 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 make you know attempt to to do something in the world. And I suppose that's a kind of uh, boundary between a sort of liberal politics and a kind of a, a sort of left politics, which would you know, which would you know the the way of countering this the rise of the the right is to organize against them rather than to mm. kind of fret in your uh, in you know in front of your screen and uh, and you know worry that you haven't kind of solved the equation yeah. yet and um you know i mean it's in a way he's very i wanted him to be quite a typical intellectual in a certain way i mean in that i find that a lot of a lot of intellectuals and artists are very a yearning for community and a yearning for kind of fellowship with other people precisely because we spend all our time in our heads and uh, are often very you know in a very sort of precarious freelance situation where we're you know isolated from others whereas the people who are banging on about their you know individual freedom are people who are stuck in large corporates mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's a huge generalization but you know for people people whose daily lives are maybe dealing with with uh, being enmeshed in large institutions whether those are sort of corporate institutions yeah. or anything else the the idea of individual liberty becomes very attractive as again as something as, as a kind of ideal to aspire to and i mean i think it's a sort of surprising amount of contemporary political polarization depends on where you are in mm. those kind of uh, you know formations yeah yeah and that's set very much against uh, against in the novel the theme of surveillance, which sort of crops up sort of again and again and again. So like with the star, so with the, the the Stasi section of like, very obviously, um, but also with his um, with his discomfort at the idea of being monitored at his workplace, but as like as part of the ethos of the research center is to watch you and is to record what you're doing. Yeah, and- I have, I have a lot of fun with ideas about transparency and ideas <laughs> about public space. You know, I mean, this mm. is, it is, a, it is a book about set, set partly in, in Germany. And, and as you say, there's the, there's stuff about, 
about the the kind of surveillance state of the of, of East Germany, but also a kind of Habermasian notion of of the transparent public sphere, where we're all kind of getting to the best decision we can as a as a um, you know liberal political actors, and there's a kind of tyranny to transparency. I mean, yeah. I'm very interested in what privacy actually allows us to do, and what mm. what you know. I mean, it started off as a book where I wanted to think about privacy and about the ways that surveillance actually kind of erodes our ability to to conceptualize ourselves in private, which I think is what mm. we need to do in order to, you know, there has to be a, a sort of space of experimentation and a space of a sort of sandbox where you can kind of try on versions of yourself before you kind of debut them in the world, before yeah. you kind of, you know, are forced to to go public about who you are what you think and you can there's a place to make mistakes and a place to be unsure and a place to kind of be incoherent and contradictory and and we're often forced into a kind of premature sharing you know Mm. i mean there's the kind of uh uh financial imperative for the social media companies to force us to share as much as possible uh because that that's that's their business model and then there's a kind of there's a sort of ethics of of openness that's part of the sort of post sixties culture, like being real, being you know, not being fake, being a kind of genuine person. This idea that we have to kind of present a real picture of our interior selves to the world at mm. large is is something that we've yeah. uh, we believe in a quite kind of un you know unthought about way that is as a that that's a a straightforward positive good i mean i'm quite i'm i'm interested in uh what, what we can do to preserve privacy and what we can mm. do to preserve the kind of radical uh self-invention that comes out of being of having a space of of privacy you know i mean it's it, it, it is oppressive to be in public before you're ready mm. yeah and it, and of course he has so little control over um over how particularly kind of digital record keeping and digital monitoring um both robs him of his privacy and also turns him into into an object whether that's an object to um whether that's an object to be sort of made use of in service of the ethos of the research center or whether it's um his image which like is like circulating on far right forums with like people making memes out of it uh it's like it goes back to what we were saying earlier about um about how it tra- how it transforms individual experience yeah. into into object so it's mm-hmm. so he's sort of constantly having to kind of confront um being made and being made into an being made into an object and his thoughts and feelings and in both interior and sort and public life crystallizing and being and being used as a kind of used an object for for any for any other kind of uh, of me, of means I mean, there's a strong philosophical tradition that says that's that's almost like the, the cardinal sin is to use others as objects to make you mm. know to to not to un- understand that you know the, the the full kind of way that human agency sort of exceeds the uh, uh, that that usage. I mean, I, I think it's somewhere in the in the novel. I have 
I have my guy talking about this moment in um, Sartre's being and mm. nothingness where mm. uh he talks about the peeping tom anyway while well, the peeping tom is kind of got his eye his uh his eye to the keyhole and is is sort of looking at whatever he's looking at through the through the keyhole he's absolutely focused on his purpose and as soon as he hears a, a sound behind him in the corridor he becomes incredibly self-conscious immediately because obviously he's been caught he's potentially being kind of caught and instead of becoming the he's the you know the pure gaze that uh, he's Whatever, whatever he's looking at, he becomes the object of somebody else's gaze, and and he loses all his freedom. Such a rights, mm. rights in this quite wonderful way about the, the freedom sort of draining out of him instantly. <clears throat> instantly. And there's a there is a, there's something that I find quite profound about that thing about being watched and not being watched in the ways that we behave when we don't expect to be watched. I mean, and now I mean I habitually forget that I walk in and out of other people's houses and they've got these fucking uh, Alexas and things yeah. switched on, and um, yeah. that my conversation is being captured. I mean, I, I, but we do now operate in any public space as if we we have to assume that we're being recorded, at least visually, if not our, our you know, audio recording. And I mean, and that certainly alters how we behave. Yeah. I mean, it's very there are very few situations in our lives where we can kind of guarantee that we are unobserved. And it's almost mm. like it's very unfamiliar in some in some ways. It's kind of scary. I mean, I remember I used to go, I used to go backpacking and go traveling to places where you know there were no phones. There's no way of getting in touch with anybody, and I would be absolutely on my own, and nobody would know where I was, and I would have no way of of and nobody would know about anything that I I said or did or or anything. It was all mm. kind of and. I remember that being scary, but also exhilarating as well. There's a kind of feeling of freedom that came with that that is is mm. very rare now. I mean, it's almost maybe maybe has completely gone now that the uh, GPS uh, network works virtually everywhere. Mm. Yeah, and I wonder, like, I I know that we're like we're kind of we're close to running out of time, and I wanted to ask like a question about how um, the narrator kind of like conceives of. Uh, his kind of relationships in this not necessarily digital space because like in the novel like there isn't it's not kind of like a online novel in the way that it sort of like deals with the specificities of platforms and everything but I guess like how the narrator deals with the kind of relationships that he has in the real world like with his wife with his kids with like the other people in the like writer's residency and this like peculiar I don't know whether parasocial is the right word but this kind of obsession that he then gets with this show and like the hidden message and the secrets that he believes that he can kind of conceive of when he watches and no one else is like paying attention to. And I think that like kind of there's like a moment towards the end of the novel, or maybe it's like right at the end of the novel, where there's almost this kind of relief uh, that the narrator feels when um, like around about the time that the election's taking place and it's very clear that like Clinton isn't going to win in 2016 and suddenly people are kind of like beginning to sort of see symbols and signs and like these kind of like images that have been obsessing and like burdening on him. And it's the, it feels like when I was reading it again, 
there was a part of me that almost like felt like the narrator, like part of the narrator's like tortured disposition is the fact that no one else around him can conceivably like understand the world in this kind of like really digitally me like this kind of digitally mediated way that he does. And there's almost this relief now where it's like as the world sort of descends into this kind of chaos or descends into this kind of like amalgamated, like how people understand it as this amalgamation that he's suddenly like validated. And I wondered like whether you were thinking about that in relation to how people like use the internet now, where again, as we spoke about at the beginning of this episode, where, you know, more and more people are sort of beginning to understand, but like, oh, these kind of like symbols and these mimetic like, images and stuff, they aren't just like things that exist in digital space. They have like these meanings and they have like political consequences as well. And this is stuff that like, you know, five years and stuff, stuff ago, like just wouldn't really be taken that seriously. Now we're at the situation where I think everyone, or like most people do at least take the basis of that seriously, whether they sort of respond to it in the right way, I'm not sure. But yeah, I wondered like uh, how, like whether mm. when you were writing that, whether that was kind of what you had in mind. Yeah, I mean, the I started the book before that election and then finished it afterwards. And I kind of really resisted ending it with the election, but it was kind of, because it would, it sort of felt too on the nose at the time. But I think mm. as, as, t- as we get further and further away from it, it will kind of bed down in a way. I think, I think it will become kind of less raw seeming as a, as a, as a way of making meaning out of it. But it was, uh, I mean, I talk about for the narrator, it's a kind of convergence. It's the kind of the, the fact that the, the expected outcome of, of, you know, sort of imperial Democratic Party victory under for Hillary Clinton doesn't happen, and instead, this sort of insurgent, you know, meme lord uh, world has has kind of erupted into the mainstream. There is a relief. You're, you know, you, you hit a, a very important point there that he does feel that there's some in some way his reality and the general reality have converged, and he feels less mad. Yeah, um, and. I think that gets to something about the sort of solipsism of the that, that awaits all of us as we get too far into into the you know down the rabbit hole of trying to work out whether that thing that inference is really there. I mean, I don't know if you follow the are uh, the board ape yacht club Nazis story or, yeah, or not. Of, but I mean, of, yeah. you know, it's, it's 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 sort of dull. But it, it I mean, but that kind of situation where there are there are people who with a lot of time on their hands who are heavily invested in in kind of trying to work out how mm. whether it's meaningful that the logo looks a bit like a totem cop. And you know what what you can then imply about the entire project of NFTs from that. Um you know, and it's and people go down rabbit holes. People lose lose touch, and so the kind of the having your reality reflected back mm. is deeply comforting. Um, you know, and sometimes your reality is reflected back by a lot of other insane people, and you end up with Q. Um, I mean, mm. you know, Q. Apart from anything else, Q is an enormous like source of community for isolated people. I mean, if you look at the the kind of the ways that Q forums operate, there's a huge amount of kind of positive reinforcement and friendliness and, and, you know, we're all, you know, investigating together. So, um, you know, there's a trap in that, in that kind of sense that other people are reflecting back your reality, but there is a, you know, there is also a, a huge relief because of, of, of the kind of, uh, yeah. uh, isolation and mystery that happens. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's like a good way to end it on. Although I would kind of really recommend like listeners like, you know, read the novel because it is just like, I think, I think in terms of 
in like the idea of the internet, like the novel about the internet. And I don't know whether you would classify it as such or whether you would even, whether if that's even like an appropriate designation. But I think it's like a really, it was a really good way of capturing at least the sort of like feeling of not just being online, but kind of existing in a, uh, like existing at a time when those kind of the being able to like sort of distinguish between the digital and like the material kind of feels like it's, it feels that we've sort of gone past that and it feels as if like as people kind of try to understand the effects of digital culture embedding and enmeshing and merging into like real life with kind of political consequences um and you know all that stuff we sort of talked about at the top of the show about how like you know you then sort of how you sort of like decipher and then combat like hyper irony that is like born in digital settings but kind of make such a big impression on uh like yeah yeah future generations i don't know i think i think it's like a really good way of like sort of capturing that and i guess as a way to kind of wrap us up for good um harry like as now that it's been like a couple of years since it's been published and you know much more has happened both in terms of politics and also um how digital culture has sort of played into uh the ways in which we sort of understand like reactionary movements and populist movements yeah like what how do you sort of think about the novel now in terms of like understanding are kind of like, you know, digitally mediated political climate, for lack of a better term. I mean, I'm, I think it did what I wanted it to do, which was to be a document of how it felt at that moment, that moment of slippage and that moment of a kind of convergence between an, a previously marginal digital world and a kind of mainstream, mm. uh, the world of, of mainstream politics that felt like it was a kind of something completely new was happening. And I mean, I'm hoping that partly because I tried not to be terribly specific about what platforms people were using and, yeah. and to kind of, you know, use a lot of buzzwords that, you know, date, whatever. I, I hope that it will it will persist as a as a document of a, a sort of the structure of feeling of, of, of how it felt at that at that moment. Mm. Yeah. I actually did have one one last question. It's a really, really on, small then. one. Uh, just a really, really short one. Then we will let you go, I promise. Uh, I was just interested in how you found, because I know you very, very deliberately didn't uh, didn't name any, uh, any platforms that he uses, which I think is wise. Um, how did you find the process of uh, writing something which is like, of its very nature, very urgent and very immediate and very contemporary with the gigantically long lead times in publishing. Like how did that like how did that affect your process when you were writing it? Did you feel like you were constrained by what you were writing about at the time being not I know, quite it's, the same it is thing very it, it is very out. difficult. Publishing is such a slow medium and I was desperate for it to be out. I wanted it to be part of a conversation that was ongoing and I um and I wanted it to be out before the twenty twenty election. I wanted it mm. to feel like it was part of that conversation. Mm. So yeah, there was I was I was a uh, I, I wanted it to land in a particular way then. But I also you can't just write something and and hope that it will exist, you know, that it, w it will land correctly in like one particular moment. I mean, certainly for a writer of novels, you're hoping that it'll still have meaning in 10 years and 20 years. And, you know, if you're lucky, you know, beyond that. Um, mm. And so you can't, 
you know, I mean, the way I tend to try and solve these problems is by setting things in a very particular moment that has passed. Mm. Like, like, you know, I, this, this book, you can tell which year it's set in. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's not trying to be in the kind of eternal present of whenever the reader is reading it. It's a historical novel in a sense yeah. about, uh, about a particular moment. And I think that lets you off a lot of the, uh, or lets you out of a lot of the, the, the more kind of thorny problems of it. But, yeah, I mean, I wish I wish publishing was a bit quicker, and I wish you know, I I, I wish it was possible to make these gestures in a way that uh, that could you know that you could kind of time them a bit better because you are at the at the mm-hmm. mercy of uh, of some large corporate schedule which you know mm-hmm. says that the time for your book is twenty twenty six, and you're like, yeah. oh, it's now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, actually, because I saw a criticism of a book that had just come out uh, for not including the pandemic, and I was like how when, port, when do you think people like were right yeah, exactly like, <laughs> they did yeah. they did they did not know <laughs> they've been waiting for their book to come out for like two three years like that that's just did not strike me as a reasonable criticism mm. <laughs> yeah uh well yeah well you know we always have like a medium way between like posts that sort of sort of get published immediately and books that take ages like you know it needs to sort yeah. of be some give that's the that's the conclusion what? i think of, you've reinvented you've reinvented blogs yeah that's right <laughs> that's right Blo- like bring back that i mean actually genuinely yes my politics is very much bring back blogs um and bring back like Blogspot in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on that note, on that note, we should probably end. So, Harry, thank you so much for giving us like uh, more of your time than we. And just thanks for hanging out. It was really great. Uh, as mentioned, like we'll put the link to uh, uh, the book for people who want to buy it in the show notes. But is there anything that you'd like to plug, or like anything that? How how can people keep up with like the stuff that you're doing? Um, I mean, I'm 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 often ranting on Twitter. Is my Twitter is is my my full name at Harry Kunzru. So you can find me there. I mean, the last, I suppose the last couple of things I've had out are an essay on the history of democratic socialism in the New York review and uh, about biology and the culture wars in the Yale review. Both of those things are online and I think unpaywalled. So uh, those are some nonfiction things that I've done recently. Cool. Uh, yeah, check those out. They'll be in the show. I'll add those into the show notes as well. Uh, we gave you all the stuff on top. Uh, just a reminder about the Patreon, five bucks a month. Good, lots of good stuff there. Uh, Phoebe, do you want to like plug anything? Um, yeah. If you if you like, you can listen to me and Milo Edwards' Seinfeld podcast, uh, which is a slightly different tone to this one. Um, which is Masters of Our Domain, and you can follow us on Twitter at Masters of Pod, where we post episodes and other stuff. And finally, this show is produced by Devon. You can follow them at Devon underscore on Earth. And you can also listen to their podcast, Kill James Bond, uh, which is very, very good as well. Uh, And on that note, we will love you and leave you. So catch you later and have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.